0: Hello, you guys, and welcome or welcome back to another episode of the Seems Like Diet Culture podcast. If you are new here, thank you for joining me. My name is Mallory Page. I am a registered dietitian. I'm also the host of this podcast, which I created because I wanted to be able to have a space to discuss nutrition, wellness, recovery, exercise, and other topics of a similar vein, in a non-diet way. So much of the information nowadays is just so riddled with diet culture, and I feel like when you're making a decision around how you want to interact with something, it's always useful to have different angles and more information, especially that which is research-backed or coming from educated professionals. As I tried to think of today's podcast topic I actually went to TikTok and typed in wellness to get some ideas. We have tons of different topics we want to do, but I like to do a mix of topics that are way more in-depth and less in-depth and just kind of have different angles to them. And I just wasn't loving what we had already planned for this week, so I wanted to switch it up. So I went to TikTok, as I said... And I was just scrolling through all these videos that were under the wellness hashtag. And there were so many things that I felt I could make videos or, I mean, podcasts about, sorry. And that's when it hit me. What if I just did an episode on the 10 less obvious red flags of diet culture? I use the term diet culture just for simplicity, but really it's any type of wellness-oriented practice and checking in with yourself on those things to know if they may not be best suited to you or they may be diet culture. I say less obvious because of the fact that I feel like a lot of you guys probably know many of the more obvious red flags such as extreme diets not being the best for you, or really rapid weight loss not being sustainable or the best for your body, or not eating under 1,200 calories a day, you know, things like that. And I wanted to dive deeper into the stuff that you may not know or may slip past you is not seeming like it's diet culture, or it may not seem like it could potentially not be best for you but in actuality, it really is. I have 10 things on this list and I'm gonna be diving into each of them a little bit more in depth. So let's just start it off with number one, which is non-research backed suggestions that only have anecdotal claims or single studies to support them. There are so many reasons why it's important to have research when you are suggesting things to other people. I'm sure if you guys have listened to this podcast before, you'll know how big of a fan I am of looking to research to actually validate claims that are out there. There are so many reasons why this is important, including but not limited to the fact that every single person is different. So even if someone says it helped them, that doesn't mean it's going to help someone else. The placebo effect is very strong. So if someone else tells them it's going to work, they may believe it's going to work and therefore it's going to have positive effects. Also, because every single person could not only have potential positive effects that come about differently, but also potential negative effects. And we never want to be recommending something without research behind it that could potentially harm someone. There are thousands of things in wellness culture that have no research behind them that people recommend so often. Cycle sinking, lemon water, ingredients to and void that they talk about. And there are so many more that I could talk through. I also feel like it's important to be wary of practitioners that base their whole recommendations off of either single studies or no studies The carnivore diet guy is someone that is known for basing his recommendations off this single study, and it's not even a reputable study. And that's the other thing that's important with research is just because there's a research article about it, it doesn't mean it's a good research article. We have to look at the sample size, we have to look at the type of study, you know, is it cross-sectional? Is it case controlled? Are they using placebos, what population are they using, et cetera, et cetera. And it's also extremely important to look at the limitations and or the bias that could be coming in. Um, the conflicts of interest such as people being funded by the company that would be affected by the research, for example, food intolerance test research thus far has been paid for by food intolerance. Companies that create those tests, that's clearly a conflict of interest, right? Now, I know that when it comes to research, if you didn't go to school to be able to learn this, like people that are in science based fields, it can be really confusing to look through. If there's a podcast like the ones that I make, you can always go to those. And I have been trying to include more of my research studies in the notes. I want to get better and better about doing that. It just takes some time to compile but there are other really well-backed people out there as well that share science-based from a non-diet perspective online. I can put together a list of some of these because in this exact moment, they're escaping me and I don't want to say them incorrectly, but also you can try to explore this on your own as well. Looking at research online you know, you can go to NCBI, you can use Google Scholar, I believe is what it is, but just know that a research article looks very formal and it looks very scientific. It's not just some article that someone threw together that may come up when you do type in research. Number two, lack of flexibility slash acknowledgement on variation. Again, there are so many ways that this can show up. Some of the main ones that I'm thinking about are hunger cues changing every day and people not being accepting of that, such as telling someone they have to eat the same calories or macros every single day. Number two, not recognizing that people will go out of town or be at weddings or be on vacations, and that variation is important to be able to adjust for in a way that's non-stressful. So if you can't adjust for that or acknowledge that there's going to be that variation or need for flexibility, it's not going to be helpful. Even just personally thinking about yourself engaging with something and imagining how flexible it will be. If I think back to my old self with all of the food rules that I had, there was little to no flexibility I could ever have within the day-to-day because of how rigid they were in terms of timing and ingredients and amounts, etc., etc. The reason why this is so important is because when something lacks these things, it's inherently not going to be sustainable and it's also not going to allow for you to cover the basis of what you actually need. If we think about this in regards to the hunger cues example and the calories fixed everyday example, if you are telling yourself you can only have that amount but you actually need more, it's going to end up being very, very detrimental for you and for your health. health. And so it's so important that we're able to have this. Number three is being weight or aesthetic focused. Now, I know that people are not going to like this one. I feel like every time I bring it up, there is pushback and I totally get it because I know society really pushes this messaging, but hear me out in what I'm saying for this. So first of all, We know that haze Orientation, Health at Every Size is a thing. So we know that weight isn't everything. We know that BMI isn't accurate. We know all of those things. Now, when it comes to combining that with wellness suggestions, I think it's really important to ask yourself why the primary focus is on external things rather than internal if the goal of this is to help us feel well right? Wellness is all about well-being and feeling your best. And so when something is weight or aesthetic focused, that does not mean it's going to help us feel any better. It could actually make you feel even worse because weight is not a direct predictor of how you are going to feel. Although it can change it, it doesn't mean it's going to change it for the positive if it's going in the direction you think it should or the negative if you think it's going in the direction you think it shouldn't. My recommendation is always to focus on how you feel internally and then know that the way that you appear externally will align with that. And if you are feeling your best, then that is the place that your body should be. And even if that isn't where you quote-unquote think it should be, there is that grieving process that may need to take place and that how you think you should look isn't always where your body wants to and needs to land in order to function optimally. And if you truly want to achieve your most well, healthy self, then you shouldn't be trying to force your body somewhere that it really, really doesn't want to go. The concept of body grief can be really, really helpful for this conversation. I have a podcast on it that you can find that walks through what that is and also Brianna Campos has a lot of really wonderful content around this. She's the one that popularized it, not me. To tie into that, the other thing that weight focus and aesthetic focus recommendations can send without even trying to is that there is a morally superior type of body and I feel like this is sometimes hard for people that live in quite privileged bodies to remember but for the people that don't, it's so hard to see these types of recommendations that act as if this one type of body is better, healthier, whatever it else it may be than another type, even though that's just not true. So just keep it in mind how that can affect others and also how it can affect you if you're someone that aligns with that. Number four is placing morality on food or demonizing foods. This is something that happens all the time and I feel like morality around food is quite a hard concept in general because it so goes against what society tells us and what we're taught from such a young age. The concept in itself shares with us that there is no such thing as moral values that inherently exist within food, which is true. That's why someone could eat a food and feel not no guilt at all, and another person could eat a food and feel complete guilt. And because of this, we are actually the ones that put morality onto foods based off our own viewpoints and standards. Now, this does not mean that broccoli is the same thing as chocolate cake. They are different in many ways, structurally, how they look, how they taste, nutritionally. But it's saying that your reaction to those things can be the same. They both can be free of guilt, and they both can be free of moral superiority as well. Many things that you see most, honestly, in wellness culture put morality in foods. Even if they say that it's okay to have quote-unquote balance, they still will call foods bad or good, clean or dirty, junk food, trash food, poison, toxic. I mean, I could go on and on and on. If you are truly in tune with your body and you've built a balanced relationship with food, you actually will naturally gravitate towards all types of foods and find what makes you feel good. But when we demonize foods and when we put them on a pedestal, it makes our relationship to them very unbalanced inherently. When you tell yourself that you can't or you shouldn't have something, it's like telling a kid that they can't or shouldn't have something. You know what it makes them want? It makes them want that thing even more or it makes them feel bad whenever they have that thing, neither of which are actually helpful when it comes to something like food. How it affects you when you put food on a pedestal is that you desire it more and more, and it makes the way that you interact with it abnormal. Maybe you eat a ton of it at a time, or you can't have it in the house, or whenever you go out to eat, you feel like you just can't even enjoy the moment because you're so fixated on how much you want or how much you can't have. No matter what, it's something that is not beneficial to your overall relationship to food and also to yourself, because why would we want to be having these type of interactions where we're shaming or guilting ourselves? It's not productive in other areas of our life, so why would we think that it's productive with food? Number five is blanket recommendations for an extremely complex problem. This is essentially what you see in all of wellness TikTok. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Someone will say something like, here's how I fixed my autoimmune disease. And they list off all these foods that they took out and Crazy wellness things that they did. Meanwhile, they're not even specifying what autoimmune disease they had. They're not specifying why they're doing these things. They're not sharing if they're a practitioner. I mean, I'm sure you guys can imagine these types of videos from Instagram and TikTok as I even say them right now. This especially happens in the areas of chronic diseases, gut health, blood sugar, and even eating disorders. But the truth is, they can be in any category. And no matter what, no one should be making blanket recommendations about them. You will probably notice online that true professionals, you know, registered dietitians, therapists, doctors, the list could go on, they are not doing this stuff. They are likely never just saying a recommendation without nuance and they are almost always giving some type of disclaimer if they are giving a recommendation. But a lot of their content more be more may be education-based if it is on these complex topics. There is a reason for that. There is a reason why you see actual professionals not say, sharing this stuff. And you see people that are not actual professionals that did not go to school to get their degrees sharing these blanket recommendations. Now, of course, you see people share bad advice and recommendations on both sides. I've seen dietitians do it, therapists. It happens way more than it should at all different angles. But regardless of who's sharing it, the issue is that we cannot actually provide a recommendation that is going to be helpful without understanding all of the information about what someone is going through. A great example of this is someone seeing online that people are sharing about gut health and they say, if you're bloated and if you're distended and blah, 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 you need to cut out these foods and do this wellness trend, But actually, the person that is dealing with gut health issues has an eating disorder or disordered eating, and that is what has caused their gut health issues, which 99% of people that are dealing with an eating disorder, and I would propose a similar amount that are dealing with disordered eating, are dealing with that because of their disordered eating and imbalanced relationship with food and exercise. So those are going to make things worse, and that is the importance of nuance, It's the whole analogy that peanut butter could be life-saving for someone that is maybe out in the desert and they get stranded and that's their lifeline. And on the other hand, peanut butter can be deadly for someone else because they're allergic. That is the crapshoot of giving information when you do not have a full picture of what someone's going through. Number six is claims that are too good to be true. This is the majority of diet culture and really wellness culture information such as cleanses, detoxes, resets, losing a bunch of weight, toning your body in a short amount of time, recovering while only gaining muscle, recovering while eating healthy. This diet will make you do x y and z in a day or a week or a month. Have food freedom while counting your macros and calories. Have food freedom while fixating on ingredients. Make sure that you have a healthy relationship with food while also losing weight. I mean, seriously, all of those type of things that feed into that voice in your head that says, Ooh, I've been wanting to avoid this uncomfortable part of the journey. Or, Ooh, I feel like, you know, I just want this quick fix It's too good to be true, always. And even if there is not research in the moment to show us that it's too good to be true, we know through the years of experience with this that it will come out later. And that is why it's best to avoid it. And I also think it's important to ask yourself why you're doing it as well. Because if you're doing it in the name of health, then we know that quick fixes and extreme measures are not healthy. If you're doing it in the name of wanting to change your body really quickly, what is causing you to feel that way? Because there's more that's underneath that. So anytime you can avoid those two, be, two good to be true claims, the better it's going to be. Number seven is lack of consideration or insensitivity to certain important factors. Some of the main ones that come to mind are cultural, body size, financial, and environmental. Some examples of this would be those type of graphics or people online that talk about Mexican food is bad or Chinese food is unhealthy. And they're basically taking an entire cultural group and just shoving this label on it and also having such a disregard for that culture as a whole and all of the intricacies as well of that culture. The body size is huge because people will share what they think is the picture of health, or they'll really push along this rhetoric that aligns with BMI or certain weights. And yet we know that those things are not accurate. So it is just not only being harmful and insensitive to those groups of people, but it is also incorrect And financial is a huge one in the wellness space. We see this a lot, whether it be more subconsciously or consciously. I mean, I've seen people like Mark Hyman share, well, I just don't see why everybody can't eat healthy while he's posting his $25 Erewhon meal. I mean, yeah, if you have endless supplies of money, it's a lot easier. And also you have accessibility in your environment to these type of foods. When I was interning as a dietetic intern in Oklahoma, I was in this really small town called Shawnee. And I remember that there were people that had to drive an hour and a half to a gas station for their food and Meals on Wheels or grocery delivery services would not go out to their location. And that's not even considering the fact that they had very, very limited funds to even be able to pay for the food that they were getting. And people forgetting these aspects is so harmful, and it makes those populations feel as if it's their fault, or they're just not They don't have enough willpower or they're just not trying hard enough. And this can also happen even in more affluent or more connected areas or for those people because the wellness culture that we see online is so extreme. You know, as I was saying in the That Girl episode, it's the people in the Skyrise Apartments with the green juices and the beautiful matching sets and shoes and it's not to say that there's anything wrong with those people having those things, but I, I think it's more important to recognize that we need to pull apart the idea of wellness with this financial necessity. Like, you don't have to be in matching sets and go to reformer Pilates classes to be well. Wellness is meant to be accessible for everybody. It's meant to be accessible for every cultural group, for every body size, and for every single person. And although it's going to look different for every single person, that doesn't mean that we should have such extreme recommendations and such diet culture influence recommendations that we are no longer able to have everybody be able to achieve their version of well-being because it feels so unachievable and so out of touch. Number eight is that they're only focusing on one piece of the wellness wheel. This is actually one of my favorite kind of come back to earth moments that I feel like I even use with myself when it comes to wellness because there's so many areas of wellness. If you look at a wellness wheel, you'll typically see physical, social, environmental, financial, spiritual, emotional, and intellectual. I want to read to you guys what's in the physical category for this particular wellness wheel, but it's also a lot of wellness wheels. Physical wellness involves movement, eating, balanced nutrition, sleeping, managing stress, receiving prevention, mental and dental, or sorry, medical and dental care, and getting sexual health screenings when you're becoming sexually active. Those are all the things that go into physical, okay? And that is one little tiny piece out of a seven-piece wheel. How many people do you feel like are hyper-fixating on two out of the, what, five or six elements in just the physical wheel of wellness. Everything they do is basically hyper-fixating on how they exercise, their food, and how they look, when in reality, there are all of these different areas, and we're just so missing that in wellness. It doesn't matter if you take out every single ingredient that you think is toxic in your environment and in your food and you move perfectly every single day and you think you're in the most ideal body ever and maybe it is even at your set point weight and you feel like you've got everything in control in your areas of physical health that I just talked about, but you are totally shot in the other areas, maybe the spiritual, maybe the emotional, maybe the intellectual, maybe environmental, maybe social, financial, it basically doesn't matter. Because you can be making yourself miserable and unwell by your hyperfixation. Trust me, this was me. (laughs) And although I was able to, on the outside, keep up certain things like social or emotional or intellectual. In reality, when I was in the depths of my orthorexia, I was falling apart all the time because the amount of time I had to spend on those areas of food, exercise, and body image overtook so much of my energy mentally, physically, emotionally, that even though I was, quote-unquote, maintaining externally these other areas, it was completely depleting me to a point where I was not functioning well. Number nine is that it doesn't address the underlying issues contributing to the forward-facing problem. Now, of course, not everything is something that comes from your internal state and reflects externally. But there are things that are coming from internal challenges or traumas or experiences you've gone through that then reflect in external things that you're going to be dealing with. For example, people that are often struggling with their relationship to food have some sort of identity dissonance that is caused by something that they've endured throughout their, their life. You know, maybe they have had a hard time with their relationship to their parents and that's affected it. Maybe they just didn't get a lot of attention when they were younger. Maybe they've struggled with self-love from a really young age. Maybe they've undergone some type of traumatic event. It can be anything, but if someone presents with that disordered eating, Just having them fix the patterns is not enough. This is why in Love Unrestricted, we do so much to focus on identity and coping mechanisms and mental health and all of these other areas because we know for a fact that just focusing on the physical actions is not going to make the difference and get you to being fully recovered. And this is also why I believe we have such a high success rate in the program, because we look at all of these areas and explain how they all connect. Now, this can also happen for people that feel like maybe they just aren't feeling in line with their body. You know, maybe they feel like they're exhibiting these signs that they may be over their set point and they just feel so lethargic and not like themselves. So many people will say, oh, that's because you lack willpower or that's because you don't have any discipline. But in actuality, there could be something deeper going on internally about how you feel about yourself or things that you've gone through. And in order to really be able to help anybody, with the external presentation of what's going on we need to be able to address these underlying things that are contributing so this is again why when you see something online and it's telling you oh yeah no just do this this is going to fix it or yeah just count your calories just count your macros just i don't know do whatever it may be that is not just going to fix it this is also why it is is so harmful to go from you know, the whole, like, I'm doing cardio and restricting my food to I'm counting calories and exercising to be strong. It is just a transfer of control. It's not addressing the fact that you're still putting worth into your body. And it's just something that can be really, really harmful. And we've seen that it can be harmful many times. Last but not least is number 10, which it doesn't make you feel your best. So, Even if you go through every single one of these things that I mentioned and more, but you turn inwards and think, you know what, this just either doesn't make me feel good physically, emotionally, mentally, maybe it creates feelings of inadequacy or comparison, or I just don't feel really energized by it, or whatever it may be, it really doesn't matter, but it doesn't make you feel good, then that's not meant for you, even if you feel like it should be. We talk about this a lot when it is comes to the intuitive eating portion of Live Unrestricted and this module that we call Building Your Own Morals Around Food. We have to be open to exploring all of the things that truly make us feel good and don't make us feel good without the bounds of what we believe they should be. I always use a silly example, but raw kale just does not work for me at all. It needs to be massaged or it needs to be cooked because it will wreak havoc on my digestive system. It's not a good look. And there were multiple times where I tried it. And when I was in my eating disorder, I still forced myself to have it even with those symptoms because I was so convinced that I thought it was healthy. But why would I force myself to do something like that? when it just doesn't work for me. On the other hand, so many people have this obsession with protein in the morning, and they'll talk about the research behind why you have to have it. And I actually have an episode on protein obsession, if if you want to listen to that, and how much protein you actually need. And I go through all of the, the research behind that. For me, I don't personally feel like I need to have protein every morning. There's a lot of mornings where I just want to have some toast, and that's fine for me. There are other mornings where I do have protein, but I'm listening to what works best for me, and that does not have to be exactly what aligns with nutrition recommendations every single time. It doesn't have to be what aligns with what other people say. It, it has to do with what works for you, and when you really reach that intuitive relationship with your body, you'll know what that is. Now, I think with this one, it is important to talk to the nuance as usual with what I was saying earlier. It's hard to have true intuition with your body when you're struggling with food or when you're still really disconnected from yourself. It took me a long time to develop that intuition and there were a lot of things that I didn't think made me feel my best just because of my own disorder thoughts. Like I avoided dairy and that was because I swore I was allergic to it, but actually I was manifesting myself not feeling good with it every time I ate it by hyper fixating on the fact that I believed it was going to make me feel bad. So with all of these recommendations, or I shouldn't call them recommendations after everything I've just said, right? With all of these quote-unquote red flags, just remember that there is so much nuance to this. Everybody is different, but generally what I was saying should be true in most cases, especially in regards to those first eight that I went through, because Anything that's saying those things to you, non-researched back suggestions, lack of flexibility or acknowledgement of variation, being waiter aesthetic focused, placing morality on food or demonizing food, giving blanket recommendations for an extremely complex problem, has claims that are too good to be true, lacks consideration for important factors like cultural haze or financial, and is focused on only one piece of the wellness wheel is just not going to help you to... Feel your best and is very influenced by diet culture, most likely, or at least to some extent influenced by diet culture. I know this was a little bit different setup for an episode. I haven't ever really done a kind of like 10 blank red flags or had multiple lists of things. It's usually topics, so if you liked this episode, definitely let me know. I always want to hear your guys' feedback, and I really appreciate it. If you do enjoy the podcast, giving a rating or review on Spotify or Apple, especially if you're willing to write one, would be so amazing, and it helps me out so much. If you have any questions or thoughts please feel free to DM me if you have an episode suggestion. You can drop it at the link in the show notes. And also, if you feel like you were resonating with what I was talking about with Live Unrestricted, that's also always linked in the show notes as well. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I will see you next week.